we can practice in every moment and with every experience, says Dan Millman, the world champion athlete. In this dialogue, he discusses how self-mastery leads into a path of service, how helping others is actually helping ourselves. And he discusses his own daily practices of paying attention in everyday life, meditating on the potential of death and peaceful warrior workouts. Dan points out that what we resist is what hurts and what persists. And he emphasizes the value of approaching all life as an ongoing experiment for learning, for awakening and for growth. Join us for this wonderful conversation. Welcome to Deep Transformation, Self, Society, Spirit, life-enhancing, paradigm-rattling conversations with cutting-edge thinkers, contemplatives, and activists with Dr. Roger Walsh and John Dupuy. Join us in the evolutionary fast lane as we take a deep dive into transformational practice, peak experience, profound understanding, powerful contribution. I'd love to hear about some of your teachers. I mentioned before that I see you as this contrarian spirit, someone who's, who has an openness to everything that one can learn from the world and from teachers, but also certain critical mindedness and uh, absolute willingness to to take responsibility for your own path and to step out on your own path. So you speak in your most recent book, Peaceful Heart, Warrior Spirit, about four people who've been really meaningful to you. And I was pleasantly surprised to find yet another way in which our lives had intersected. The two of your four teachers had been two of mine. So I'd love to hear about these teachers, how they touched you, how you related to them. So please, any way you'd love to start. Well, sure. You know, I... I believe that you'll relate to the first two in particular who you, you knew and, and work with to your own degree. The first major teacher I had, which I go into how I met and so on, but I called him the professor because he created a school that may be the most sophisticated, step-by-step progressive approach to awakening, realization, liberation, whatever words we have for it, brilliantly based on, he was a scientist mystic. And so he founded the work on science. He said he had great respect for faith, but the acceleration needed in modern times for modern men and women required an objective process anyone could go through. And if they do the work, do the practices, which combine various forms of breath work, body work, movement, a contemplation, models of understanding reality. And I'd been around the track by that time, by the time I met him, but encountered nothing like it. And I think you can relate. It was a 40 day, about 10 hours a day training. And I threw myself into it with a particular intensity I learned when my spiritual training began on that trampoline. It was my first type of absorptive, contemplative, in a way, absorbing training, training concentration and so on. So that was my foundation. He was a martial arts master, as well as, again, really understood physiology, anatomy, and psychology to the degree it was understood in his time. And so he designed, brilliantly designed this complete spiritual technology. Now I know Patanjali had, you know, eight limb Raja Yoga and other ancient teachers had an eclectic approach in many traditions, but this was a global heritage of spiritual traditions that the professor had mastered. And so I went through that and I dove in the way I dove into everything. 
surrendered myself to it and did my very best in the 40-day training, then an advanced training for, it was two or three weeks. Time was relative back then. And then some more advanced work as well, until I realized that an endless progression, I really threw myself into it. It wasn't as I hadn't applied myself, but I was also having trouble in my first, I had an early marriage when I was young, and that really kept me humble. And I saw myself as a knight, not in shining armor, but more tarnished. Mm-hmm. And I realized that all this inner work by itself made me better at doing inner work, but it didn't necessarily carry over into everyday life. So then I met the guru when I kind of distanced myself from another level. And then he was starting to say three levels, five levels, nine levels. Eventually, I left the professor's company at that point, And this is after some time. And I discovered this transcendental master a very radically different approach. He was brilliant, creative, humorous, and most scholars and religious, the more they understand spiritual practices and training and traditions, people like Ken Wilber, who said he he understood these teachings better than their originators, the way he expressed them. So he was quite a brilliant author. I mean, he had a degree from Columbia in philosophy and and, uh, English at Stanford, a master's. He was a brilliant writer. And yet he started attracting followers. So it became a different approach of surrendering to the divine through the physical form of this master who was absorbed in spirit. I'm not going to go into the whole arc of my time with him, but he did point out one thing that I've carried with me, because you mentioned I was sort of an independent type guy who looked at things critically at times. Not at first, I just dove in. However, he actually said, he said, before you can become spiritual, You have to become fully human. And he said, most of you are still living a subhuman existence. So he had conditions and disciplines in everyday life. So the practice became all throughout the day, eating, sleeping, walking, everything we did was devotion to the guru or to really the divine through the guru. And he pointed out, he said, most people approach me as young children looking for a parent figure, looking for an authority to tell them how to live, tell them what to do. And he said, I'm not looking for children. Now, there's nothing wrong with childhood. We all start out as children, but we do mature from there. And so he, did, he wasn't looking for encouraging people, and as do some teachers, to be childlike devotees and unaccepted obedience, tell me what to do, and so on. He said, neither am I looking for adolescence. As we grow through that stage of life, Adolescents need to find their own identity, their own way. So they reject their elders. They reject authority figures. They rebel. That's the essence of adolescence. And they need to do that. It's more obnoxious. It's more troubling than just the obedient children. But it does represent a level of maturity growing through that. Many in our society are like that. Any authority figure, including the government, tells them something, they want to do the opposite. So they're going through that adolescent type of phrase and anger and resentment. He said, what I'm looking for is mature adults who will take wisdom, whatever source it comes from, and make use of it and incorporate it into their life. So that was a valuable lesson. And I never looked at it quite that way. Once you hear it, it's very easy to, it's like at the beginning of an irreversible learning process. So that was one of many lessons I learned in my almost eight years with the guru before, for various reasons I go into in the book, I moved on from there. You were going to say? I mean, this is a very important subject to me because I was in a cult. I think I was 14 when I joined. I left in my early 20s. 
So been there, done that. And it wasn't a big groovy cult. Like you could say, Adi Da was kind of, well, he was had his issues, but he was still pretty amazing. I tra- And people that I respected had said good things about him. So I would go and I would read the book. And later on, I saw him on YouTube, you know, his talks and whatnot. Everything's there. I just thought the arrogance of this guy. Oh, my God. And if this is the highest level of human achievement ever, he said, I'm above Jesus. I'm above Allah. I mean, I'm above Muhammad. I'm above everybody. And if he was the, the pinnacle of human achievement, I'm just going to stop because I'd never want to get there. Uh, it was, you know, obviously, based on my projections and my experiences of people giving up their power to a person. And when they get that, very few, it's not uh, power doesn't corrupt, but it deeply reveals who you are the more you get what you do with it. And most people can't handle that being the focus of all that. And I don't think he could either. And he got very corrupted and hurt a lot of people. And I've had long conversations with friends who were a part of it and have tried to, you know, what happened? You know, why, why, what was rotten in Denmark? You know, what was it about that whole experience? And now we're having, you know, we're having with QAnon and we're having new versions of kind of cult like stuff coming up that is, putting our country in peril. I mean, I feel so what, you know, and Roger, I'd love to hear any reflections or anything that you might have on that too. Dan, love to hear you respond to what John said. Uh, Sure. Sure. Roger. Well, the guru pointed out that cults are everywhere. He said, cults are not in themselves a problem. A cult by definition is a group of several to many people who centered around a devotion to a person or a thing, a mission. Baseball can become a cult for some. Christianity, Judaism, Buddhism, they're all cults. They're mainstream cults, followed by thousands of people. He said, the issue isn't whether something is a cult. It's whether it is a benign cult and helpful or harmful. There are completely deluded cults by exploitive or deluded masters, so-called masters, And there are other cults that are relatively benign. People gather around reading groups who love to read, a cult of reading. I'm broadening the context of a cult. Most people think of it as a negative thing. You say something's a cult, but usually there are positive aspects because if there weren't, nobody would be drawn to them. And we don't need to get into the whole cult busting, deprogramming issue right now. You know, how people get love bombs thrown at them. They get hugged, they get embraced, young, lonely people. And they're drawn into these organizations, or they take an introductory course, whether it's MSIA or Scientology, they take an introductory course that's really pretty interesting. And it draws people deeper into the the darker uh, recesses and elements. I have friends who've done Scientology and thought it was pretty useful for them, but other people have reported the the many liabilities. So uh, we all have to keep our hearts open, but our eyes open as well. And in the book, in a way, my story is a cautionary tale because I tell what attracted me to the professor and then the guru and the other teachers that followed, but also why I moved on. So hopefully the book serves more. I wouldn't write a memoir just because it's about me. Everybody has a story. There's a saying that God invented men and women because God loves stories. So, So we all have a story to tell and to live. It's our treasure. No story on the planet is exactly like our own. At the same time, I wanted to write about the major elements which I happen to be exposed to. I didn't make any of this up. This is as true as I can write it. But the four mentors I had, each way different from the others. 
but collectively they represent kinds of paths people take. One of them is the guru and the cultic atmosphere. I would have never said I was living in a cult at the time. And in fact, the guru once said, you know, this isn't a cult because it's hard to get into and really easy to leave. And he had a point. It was very difficult. You have to agree to many conditions before you can even approach the guru. Diet and exercise and living a stable human life and contributing 10% of your income, which is normal in spiritual traditions and churches, to inspired organization and so on. There were many other conditions about every aspect of life. So it was hard to get into. And anyone could just get up and walk away. However, as I point out in the book, there is a golden thread made of steel that binds people in these cults because people don't follow a guru because they think it's the second best opportunity in town. <laughs> they follow because they said, this is the way, this is the primary best or only way. And that's why for them, it's like they feel like Adam and Eve leaving the Garden of Eden as if they missed the last cosmic train to enlightenment. And so psychologically, even if they're free to walk away, they're really psychologically bound up. Maybe you have some comments? Yeah, I mean, there's so much in what you'd said. Maybe bringing together the conversation about becoming adult and cult and culture and enculturation. First off, you made an important point through Adida that what we take for adulthood is actually, as Abraham Maslow said, a form of collective developmental arrest. And once you get that, then a lot of things about the world and the crises we're in begin to make sense. And you see that what we have taken as normality is not the ceiling of human potential or development. It's actually a, as Maslow called, an arrested form of development, but it's, a, it's the cultural norm so we grow, we come into the world, not as a blank slate, but certainly as these open, malleable heart minds. We are encultured by our society into a particular worldview, value system, value set, mythos, belief system, etc. And that serves, as you pointed out, a very valuable, essential function to bring us up to the conventional level. But one of the, to my mind, one of the most important things we are learning in our time is that there are not one but multiple post-conventional stages of adult development. And those stages are available to us all. But the distinction is culture works kind of like a magnet, pulls you up to the conventional level, but tends to hinder you moving beyond. And so we get a free ride up to the conventional level, which we call adulthood, but spiritual teachers <laughs> say, and your teacher said, no, it's not real adulthood. We get a free ride up to that. But afterwards, moving to, post, to and through post-conventional stages is largely up to our own motivation and cultivation and work and, of course, community and, and ideally teachers. So... There's a, it really seems helpful to me to have that framework. And you were pointing to it. I just wanted to put that on. And then from that perspective, culture is invaluable, as you suggested, but it's also the biggest cult of all. And one which we don't recognize as such because all of us are enculturated into it. So it has this dual function. One of the functions of inner work is to help us move, is not just to have altered states, but to move through 
later stages of psychological and spiritual maturity. And the distinction being altered states are temporary by definition. Stages tend to be more stable. And ideally, we want both. But we tend to talk more about states because they're more easily recognized. And stages and developmental stages are more like kind of the operating system which a computer uses. They're what we look through rather than what we look at, so it's harder to recognize them. But the fact we are recognizing for the first time that we have these developmental potentials and we have, as you've been pointing out, moldable tools and practices and ideally communities and teachers to help us move into them seems just an incredibly important recognition. I, you know, I hadn't heard it expressed just like that, Roger, even as I was going through the training You know, I remember a wonderful quote by Carl Jung, who said, enlightenment consists not merely in the seeing of luminous shapes and visions, but by making the darkness visible, enlightenment. He said the latter procedure, however, is unpleasant and therefore unpopular, or it's difficult and therefore unpopular. And that's why you say people get a free ride to the conventional level, and they want to feel like now I've arrived I'm stable. I'm a normal, good person. You know, the professor, as you may recall, I think you do, he had his own model or schemata, and they're umpteen models and theories, but his seemed to be grounded pretty well in reality, from my experience uh, over the years. He said there were these different levels of consciousness where people hung out, their psyche kind of felt more comfortable with. And what was interesting to me, especially today, the things going on today. He said the lowest level of consciousness, he called blind belief. And it's like man or men or women against the universe. It's a stage of tension, anger, often buried under bravado and a a loud laugh and aggressive, like everything's great, but it's blind belief. The bodies deny and belie the idea that everything is great. But he characterized this as people who clasp onto any belief that's consoling to them, whether or not it's at all tethered in reality. And he said 95% of people, when I first learned this back in 1972 or three, he said 95% of humanity is locked into this level. Now that was shocking to me. I found it hard to believe. And yet today, how many people gravitate to conspiracy theories and believe anything, whether it has anything to do with reality or not. So it does seem to describe a certain tendency toward blind belief. Then he said the next level up was conventional reality, accepting what was in fashion, what was normative, normal, considered normal. And then there's another level that's achieved by certain athletes who are famous and certain celebrities and actors people very well-known and recognized, they're given a longer leash. They go into the level of, he called Saint Ego, which was self-aggrandizement, that they're above the law, above convention, and they feel so liberated looking back on all those conventional people. And that happened in the 60s a lot, people going beyond that, I'm free, I'm liberated. But that was just this adulation of the ego, of the self, as the highest thing in the universe. But then he goes higher, which is the philosopher Charlotte. It was disillusioned with blind belief or disillusioned with convention, disillusioned with being supposedly liberated or above the conventions of the society. And it goes into formulating theories and philosophies about everything, whether they're 
based on research or reality or not, they form theories. And they would talk long into the night on this theory or that theory, how everything works. When they become disillusioned with that, then they go into another higher level, which is really disillusioned. And they start to confront the fact that maybe they're asleep. And many hermits, many drug addicts, people disillusioned with life, they've seen through it all. And this is an unpleasant, subjective place, but it's actually a higher level than many people who are just stable and conventional and afraid to look beyond that. So I'm not going to go into all the levels, but then you get finally, when you realize you're asleep, you have the possibility for waking up. And then there are other levels that are higher than that. But it, it intrigued me. And it let me see that I wasn't as quite a high level of consciousness as I might have imagined myself at the time. Isn't that a recurrent recognition through the, throughout the path? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I'm not willing to, you know, at this stage, I'm not willing to bet on much because I have my, one of my founding assumptions is that at bottom, all is mystery. But one thing I'm willing to bet on, this game is a lot bigger than I can possibly imagine. Agreed. Agreed totally. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, just one quick interjection that I definitely want to hear what you have to say, John. Okay. I was introduced in Melbourne. I was giving a talk there and they said, Dan Millman is an expert in mindfulness. And the first thing I said to the audience was, my wife would beg to differ. <laughs> uh, when she sees how I do the dishes, she always finds spots I missed. Yeah. So, you know, to me, mindfulness has become a thing. Like, oh, I practice mindfulness. Like it's a one-stop spiritual shopping. But basically being mindful just means paying attention to what's going on in the present moment without judgments. And that's the practice. And I don't have much more to say on the topic. Maybe you guys do. John? <laughs> well, I have one thing I want to put in. It, it's a takeoff on your story. And that is, there was a psychiatrist by the name of Arthur Dykeman who wrote a number of beautiful things about inner work. And one of his things he stated was, the best test of enlightenment, which I've since come to name Dykeman's test of enlightenment, is ask the spouse. Yes, ask the spouse. <laughs> or Ram Das said, if you think you're enlightened, go home and visit your parents. Ah, uh, yes, yes. I had, a, <laughs> I had a teacher once who said was a renowned, world-renowned expert on communication. He said each time he went back to his parents' place in East Europe, he regressed 40 years. <laughs> yep, that's pretty basic. John, you were going to say something. Yes, I have an important question that Heidi reminded me in the, my little chat box not to let you get out of here about asking. What is your practice now? How do you take care of your body? How do you take care of your mind? How do you take care of your emotional life? How do you take care of your spiritual life? And how do you take care of your relational life? And how do you put that together? Dan Millman, 75, if I got it right. What do you do today? Well, there are many ways to answer that. I'll try to keep it relatively brief. My practice today is paying attention in everyday life. That is my practice to, again, the skills of everyday life waiting in line, noticing people. I'm still working on it. It's a humbling practice. So that is really my practice isn't a thing or separate from it. My meditation is in everyday life. Now, I did create a four-minute meditation on the process of dying. I do that almost daily. I did it every day for a year and a half before I ever taught it. But this meditation is unlike anything in terms of helping us appreciate rather than what we tend to do is take for granted the stuff of everyday life, of being alive. So that's why I do this four-minute meditation. But other than that, I actually, and having quiet moments, of course, 
walking in the park, which I do almost every day. The Japanese call it forest bathing. Beautiful. And you can relate to that, John, the, the love of nature and connecting to the natural world, which is really my ultimate teacher and source of inspiration. However, in a practical sense, to answer that, I start every day before I even get out of bed with exercise. Then I get out of bed after I do some bed exercises. Then I do various things. I have a workout I created many years ago. Again, a four-minute workout I call the Peaceful Warrior Workout. It combines deep breathing in coordination with movements, tension release, and so on. gets every part of the body. But I add things to that. I do some push-ups, some handstand push-ups, whatever my own particular body mind likes to do. And then I'll bicycle around the park or walk around the park. I do these things regularly to maintain a certain level of fitness. And I'm going to send you a brief video, a 14-second video, Roger, of me swinging to a handstand on the parallel bars just last week. All right. Now <laughs> I'm really impressed. <laughs> yeah. well, I, I forgot to do that before our, our interview. But that's in terms of body. I, eat, I happen to have adapted to a vegetarian diet for 50 years. So I don't, I don't eat meat or fish. And I only found out later, it's maybe a good thing if we eat less meat for the environment and the world on many levels. There may be advantages, but you know that brings me to the fundamental foundation of the, what I call the peaceful warrior's way. And that is there is no best diet. There is no best teacher, philosophy, book, no best exercise system, no best martial art. There's only the best for each of us at a given time of our life. So we need to respect our process and never compare ourselves to anyone else, which is a disrespect to our fundamental nature. When I used to teach somersaults, I noticed some people learned a somersault more quickly than other people. But those who took longer to learn it often learned it better than those who learned it faster. So I say we have to respect our own process. Life is an experiment. We have to find out what works for us and to respect that and live our lives, not someone else's. So anyway, I happen to eat a vegetarian diet and I get enough rest and yeah, exercise, diet, you know, balanced diet. I'm not saying vegetarian, vegan, all raw, locally grown and all the other ideas. People have to find out what works for them. What's eating a little more of what's nutritious, a little less of what's not, but not trying to go for perfection of any kind and being gentle with themselves, I think over time. So that's what I do in terms of self-care, practical, balanced approach to living. And that supports me to do the work I do, the writing and teaching, which is my primary form of service, though I am known to pick up litter now and then when I go to a new town. I don't know if my words have an impact, but I know the town's going to be a little cleaner after I've left. So I don't know if that responds to your question. If not, ask me again. No, I think you answered it very well. I really appreciate that. Thank you. Okay. Yeah, and it's beautiful, and I think it speaks to actually something I wrote in the blurb for your most recent book, Peaceful Heart, Warrior Spirit, which was that you've been a lifelong student and long-term teacher practicing and perhaps mastering what would be traditionally called the Zen of ordinariness. And in Zen, there's the idea that one, in some of the traditions, one really strives, and Zen can be quite tough. And yet the goal passes through a variety of profound experiences and openings and altered states. Yet the end point is not some form of specialness, but a transcendental ordinariness, a living of life fully and wholly and with awareness and care and compassion. But 
there's a beautiful series of pictures, the quite famous 10 ox herding pictures, which portray the spiritual path and its stages. And the final stage is called entering the marketplace with help bestowing hands. And it shows this very ordinary guy with a, <laughs> carrying some wine. <laughs> and uh, one of the commentaries says, even the wisest cannot find them meaning that they are so ordinary. They have let go any sense of specialness. They are just fully embodied into the moment in a spontaneous flow with life that from the outside it can look completely obvious. And it seems to me that's what you're describing as your way of living now and the art to which you have devoted your life and to which I, I know this may sound a little much, but which I bow in respect because it truly is perhaps the art of arts. Well, I can't add to that. I think it's a beautiful statement and thank you. I consider that quite a compliment and I think you get me. And several things I'd like to take up. One is your death meditation sounds very powerful. Is that available on your website? Yeah, I have several online courses and one of them is the Four Minute Peaceful Warrior Meditation. That's the one. Great. You, know, you mentioned two of your teachers, Dan, but you actually write about four in your book. Would you like to say something about the other two? I would love to in the time we have. Yeah. The third teacher I had, now after the guru's community, it was not a place to really learn self-trust. It was all about trusting the divine, the guru, and so on. So I was at kind of a low point in terms of personal confidence, a sense of myself. And, and the warrior priest he had a way of addressing the subconscious, understanding it as an inner child and encouraging it and, and ways to work with the subconscious, what he called the basic self, based on the kahuna teachings of the healers of Hawaii. Every culture has its own gifts, and he drew deeply from that well, as well as others. And more than anyone, he gave me the tools to actually do what I recommend anyone can do is make a decent living while doing what they love and find meaningful and serving other people. So I never really taught until I met the warrior priest. I had been teaching mostly gymnastics, but after his influence, I began to mature. And I'd been teaching some bigger picture elements, even in gymnastics, transitioning over to everyday life. But he gave me tools to my, my second most popular book is called The Life You Were Born to Live, and it deals with a rather unusual system to help increase self-knowledge and self-compassion and compassion for others. So it's a leap in self-knowledge. He also taught me a course, Spiritual Growth and Insight Through Knife Fighting. It was a martial arts-based course based on the Filipino arts of Kali, Eskrima, Arnis, stick and knife fighting. And in four and a half days, it was equivalent to six months to a year training in most martial arts schools because of the approach we took. And I taught that for 14 years. I'm not giving a promotional comment. I don't teach it anymore. But it was a brilliant approach that I ran with and added my own elements and those who took it, and a number of people did, they'll know what I'm talking about. One British couple had a way with words. They said, the thrusting knife teaches trusting life. And I thought that was just lovely. Uh, they wrote that to me in a postcard. So he gave me practical tools. For example, you mentioned a degree of empathy where, you know, sometimes you feel I should be sad with the person. And the warrior priest had a way of expressing things. He said, Dan, you know the difference between sympathy and empathy? He said, in sympathy, someone's in a dark hole and you get into it with them. Mm. But with empathy, they're down there in the dark hole saying, hey, come on down here with me. And you go, no, I'm actually comfortable where I am, but here's a ladder and you can come out if you want to climb out. 
So he expressed the difference, which I think is good for helping professionals to understand, which I'm, many of them are trained to do, of course. So anyway, that's an example of his homely way of teaching, simple, everyday, action-based, inspiring, exciting, charismatic. And what could I do after that? Who could possibly teach me after the professor and the guru for eight years and the warrior priest? I wasn't looking, but I stumbled across this fellow who wrote a book called Constructive Living, a humble sage named David K. Reynolds, who was an anthropological psychologist. He actually graduated uh, along with Carlos Castaneda in his graduate program from UCLA at the same time, and they knew each other pretty well. But he taught this down-to-earth approach, reality-based approach to living in the moment purposefully and recognizing our deep debt to all those who supported our lives that we often take for granted. So that is a summary of the full arc of my teaching before I began to form a new teaching, the Peaceful Warrior's Way, not just mouthing the words I've learned from them. It's more like they gave me keys to doors that had previously been closed. And I was able to have certain insights that feel independent of the various teachers, not reflecting them or duplicating them, but a fresh expression. Though I look back on all of them with gratitude, but also recognizing that every teacher is human and every human has flaws. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and Dan, you mentioned, mentioned twice, but only in passing, in relation to David Reynolds' work, who I read some of his stuff, I appreciate it. But you mentioned gratitude. And I just want to invite you to speak to that, because it seems like more and more people are appreciating that as a practice unto itself. Yes. Well, one of the fundamental elements, realistic elements that the sage taught was that we have less control over what emotions we experience in any given moment. It's more like weather passing through us, changing all the time. We can't will ourselves to feel differently in any given moment. We can distract ourselves. We can try techniques to influence how we're feeling, but we can't control what emotion we're feeling in any given moment. Anger management courses don't control anger. They control our behavior, how we behave when we're feeling angry. And there's a big misunderstanding about that when people talk about emotional control. He also said thoughts happen to us. We don't say, I think I'll think this thought next. And we don't have a spam filter in our heads. So he said, focus more on what you can control, which is your behavior, what you do, whatever you happen to be feeling. And that gave me a complete practical form of liberation where I could bring to the world whatever I was going to bring, whether I was feeling confident or motivated or shy in any moment. But he also had another complementary teaching, which was about recognizing our indebtedness. Right now, I'm not only grateful to you for inviting me, both of you, on the show and to Heidi and to Vanessa for helping make all this happen behind the scenes, but I'm also grateful to the persons who developed the computer on which I'm speaking now and the Zoom platform and all those people who taught me how to type and to read and to write. And we see how we're supported, whether we've earned it or deserve it or not, that the world supports us. So he pointed out gratitude is... We often speak of it as a feeling. I feel grateful, but we have no control over whether we happen to feel grateful. You know, we've been given gifts and we weren't necessarily grateful at the moment, but we can control whether we say thank you. We can express gratitude. 
We can behave with gratitude, whether or not we happen to be feeling it in the moment. In fact, one of the most provocative things I teach is that I do not encourage people anymore to feel kind or peaceful or happy or loving or grateful or courageous or confident. I encourage them to behave that way, to bring those elements into life and let feelings take care of themselves, to pass, change, and move on. And I I know a question you often ask people is what hurts? And what hurts in my life is when I resist what is happening in the moment. And what feels good is when I go with the flow. To me, it's the first law of spirit is acceptance and learning to flow with what life brings us. And that's one of the higher laws I do my best to practice to whatever degree I can. And your description of gratitude and the recognition of the many people who are supporting us in this moment and every moment, making all this possible, for me, I've come to appreciate can be such a profound, profound practice. And this isn't, of course, my own recognition, but there's a practice in Tibetan Buddhism in which you sit on the cushion and then you reflect on all the life factors and the happenings and circumstances and people who have made it possible to have what is called a free and well-favored life, free of the afflictions which would prevent one actualizing one's fullness and contribution in the world, favored in being favored and gifted with the circumstances which enable one to do all this. And if you sit down and start thinking about it, you realize It's literally a boundless network of people and circumstances for which we can be grateful, who have enabled us to be here. And we can take it laterally, as you did, the people who created our computers and our houses and homes and clothes, etc. But then you can take it to all who supported those people, provided them with food and farmed and etc. You begin to realize that practically everyone on the planet right now was necessary for us to enjoy this moment. And that, for me, is just mind-blowing. Then you can take it back throughout history and realize there are millions of people who invented the subcomponents of the computer or learned how to farm tens of thousands of years ago. And again, that's an endless network of interdependence and gratitude. It can be overwhelming. It can be overwhelming with joy. There was a Serbian proverb, two men looked out of prison bars, one saw mud and the other saw stars. And both mud and stars exist. We can't ignore the mud or we may step in it. It's part of life. But we can also attribute and turn our attention to the stars and the possibilities and all those we can thank in our lives. And it can be overwhelming, but in a a very, I think, wondrous way. Uh, Overwhelmed by gratitude or joy. May it be so. (laughs) And let's see, several places to go. One of the things you've emphasized here, and you emphasize in a number of your books, including your most recent one, is life as an experiment. Talk to that. Well, we try to find a one-stop solution. If I live in the present moment, everything will be well. Well, it can be a good skill because that's all we have anyway, the present moment. The rest is illusion, memory, and imagination. But if we approach life as an experiment, how does this food make me feel afterward? When I take this course or action, 
what results do I have? And we can develop perspective, which is the better part of wisdom, from noticing this experimental. In, in a way, it's a scientific approach. We form an idea, we try it out in our own life and see how it works. So I think, you know, the warrior priest used to tell us the mind is like a parachute. It works best when it's open. And so I think keeping that open mind and trying different things, rather than feeling locked into one dogma or approach to things, can make for an interesting life. Just trying new things every now and then, because it's so easy to get into ruts. It is easy to get into ruts, indeed. That's a very good point. Yeah. And there's even an academic discipline now called action inquiry, which speaks to what you're talking about. That is that each activity in the world can be an inquiry, can be a way of learning and ideally will be. And it seems like there are layers to this. It seems like if we look deeply into the foundations of our belief, which seems like a really important practice. And you've implied this, that if we start an inquiry, not just into our outer effectiveness of our outer actions, but also into our own belief systems and assumptions, it seems like we end up in mystery really bottomless mystery. And that can feel very disconcerting at first. And Carlos Castaneda, who you mentioned in his books, his teacher Don Juan speaks of the four traps of a person of knowledge. The first is fear. And we're all familiar with that. And you've talked about working with fear. The second is very interesting one, though. It's power. Because when you start working on yourself, you start to get all little strength, little power and interpersonal power. You feel more confident. You don't feel, you know, you're not so easily intimidated and it can get a little intoxicating. I'm going to jump to the final one, which is old age, which is something we're looking at here now. The temptation not to continue the quest, essentially. It's like, okay, I lived a good life. Well, you know, maybe I'll just take a, you know, take it easy from here on, which for a spirit warrior such as yourself is maybe, I'd love to hear you talk about that, but I want to first mention the third trap, which I skipped over because it's so relevant to what you've been saying. And that is, for me, it's the most intriguing trap of all. It's the trap of clarity. Mm. And it's called a trap because when you clear, it's like, oh, this is the way things are. And that we crystallize around that understanding. And that clarity is what we have to let go to move to the next level, to the next larger, more nuanced, more encompassing perspective and understanding of ourselves and life. Thank you. That's a great reminder personally to me because I have fallen into that trap of clarity. I feel I'm clear on things. I can stop there. But there's always that element of uncertainty. They say you have to be able to let go of one side of the pool to swim to the other side of the pool. And you can be clinging to one side because it's clear there. You can see all around you. But to go into uncertainty, I think Alan Watts wrote about that in his book, The Wisdom of Insecurity. The idea of being willing to go into that not knowing space again. On the other hand, taking it easy is appealing to me too. That's a practice in itself for those who have trouble doing so. So I wouldn't put down taking it easy in moments since life is just a series of moments. Yeah, thank you, Dan. I appreciate that point of balance and you're catching me because, you know, one of my strengths slash traps is, 
you know, kind of workaholism and go for itism like yourself. And I, that's one of the reasons I, I love looking at you and your work and <laughs> taking inspiration from that. But yes, it does need. I remember many years ago, one of the first retreats I ever went on, Ramdas, the wonderful teacher who you mentioned, said, balance is a magical word on the spiritual path. And that's a wonderful reflection. Uh, yeah. And whatever strength we cultivate, okay, what's the balance point for that? What's the complement? And moving between them in the sense of the polarities we spoke of before, that one can be the fuel and catalyst for a deeper opening to the other. Yeah. The professor used to talk about the balance between different polarities, between the hedonist and the puritan, between the peacock and the chicken, between the analytical and disoriented. And there are different polarities that we have to find for us. Where is the balance in that particular place? And, you know, speaking of balance, I'm actually being called to lunch right now. I could talk with you for hours with both of you, many hours, I'm sure. Maybe it's the beginning of an ongoing conversation down the line. So, Dan, let me... Let me give you a last impression I got very strongly, that you would have made a really good rabbi. <laughs> Thank you. My wife tells me that sometimes. Really? Okay. I really got that strongly. <laughs> high praise. So. Uh, thank you, John. Thank you. Dan, we've covered so much, and it's been just a delight. But is there anything you'd like to say by way of conclusion? Wow. It feels you've drawn out of me, I feel, so many comments that I've shared it's all any teacher can do is offer reminders, observations, perspectives, and maybe some practices as well. But no, I, I think, wow. Well, I think one of the questions you ask many people is, what important question do you have in your life that guides your life? And I think the question is, what needs doing right now? I think it's one of the most important questions we can ask with all the philosophies and higher ideas in any moment is what is my purpose in this moment and to move toward that purpose. My purpose has been sharing with you and I thank you for the invitation, the opportunity. So that is the question on which I would open and probably close for today. Beautiful. And we will, of course, uh, include your website, descriptions of your book, just to mention your most recent one. Again, Peaceful Heart, Warrior Spirit. Fascinating and compelling book. I can't wait to finish it. Thank you, John. I have appreciated it too. Dan, would you like, just like to mention your website? Sure. Anybody curious? It's peacefulwarrior.com. Peacefulwarrior.com. And it features a number of different items. For example, a free life purpose calculator. People can click on that and get some quick sample insight into maybe their life path. Dan, you've been uh, an inspiration for me for, gosh, more years than I want to remember. At least at a little of uh, 55 years, I think, was when I first read about your trampolining. It's been just wonderful. I'm so grateful our lives have crossed in many ways, and I'm so delighted you agreed to have a dialogue with us. Congratulations on your new book. Thank you for all your wonderful work. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. God bless, brother. Thank you. Bye-bye. Today's episode was brought to you by iAwake Technologies. Visit the Deep Transformation website to find out more about iAwake's audio tools designed to wake us up, grow us up as a part of our daily deep transformational practice. Thank you for joining us. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Deep Transformation Podcast, and we greatly appreciate your comments, suggestions, and questions. Thank you for all you are and all you do. From John, Roger, and the Deep Transformation team.